Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verse 28 today. And as you're turning there, uh, I, I had a, a, a comic that I came across that I thought was kind of humorous. So I wanted to just share it with you, a comic between a, a father and a son here. And uh, take a look at the, the dialogue. The son turns to the father and says, raise my allowance now and it will lower your tax liability later. And though I don't like to think about it, there's that specter of inheritance tax that we can avoid, too. Uh, you know, kid, kids, kids will do anything, right, to kind of get the extra edge on their parents. And here's a, here's a little boy who's he's trying to you know, persuade his dad in a number of different ways to, to give over a little extra money, to give over maybe some of his inheritance a little bit early. And, you know, he, he provides some good reasons, you know, tax liability issues and, uh, and uh, inheritance tax. You know, by the way, at the end of the year, I guess the inheritance tax is going from like zero to 50 percent. So, you know, that, that's a legitimate reason here, you know. Um, but the whole when you think of inheritance, um, you know, you're thinking of something that uh, is not just meant for you and you alone. You know that I, I mean. Uh, what, Casey and I, we put together a little bit of a will. You know, we, we don't have much, but what we have, we've, we've put together in this will and we've said, OK, if we die, you know, uh, uh, well, right now, if we die, Bennett gets it all. Mallory hasn't been added yet. So that's a problem. But uh, so poor Mallory, my, my, you know, year and a half year old here. She's going to get nothing if we die. But Bennett's going to, boy, he's going to be rolling in about 5K. And uh, and so. Uh, so we need, we need to amend that. We need to amend that will so that my daughter gets her fair share. Because inheritance is meant to be shared. It's meant to be spread across those that you love. It's meant to be uh, shared with those who, who you want to share it with. And not, very rarely is it just given to one person. Usually uh, those who divvy out an inheritance, they share it with many because they want to bless many. Who, who they loved and who they care for. In our text in Romans 8 today, we're going to find there's another kind of inheritance that's meant to be shared. The Father, our Heavenly Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, the inheritance that He is going to be giving to His Son one day, inasmuch as the Father will one day give Jesus all things, both he and Jesus are also looking to divvy up shares of the son's inheritance to those who love God, to those who suffer with Christ in this life. And so the title of my message today is a peculiar one, but, but it's a biblical one. And it is this, Jesus's inheritance designed to be shared. Jesus's inheritance designed to be shared we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 32. Not a lot of uh, text, but it's packed. Uh, it's, it's filled to the brim with rich biblical content that we're going to need to sort through. <clears throat> and so, so bear with us as we walk through Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 32. And let's, let's all stand together as we read just uh, 28 to 32, and then you may be seated. Let's stand and, and I'll read Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 32. Paul writes this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. 
For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? You may be seated. Verse 28, Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, uh, here again, uh, as I've mentioned before in Romans, there's, there's, always, there's some bookmark verses, right, that you see on bookmarks. So this is another one of those bookmark verses. I mean, how many of you, how many of you just, this is one of your favorite verses. Raise your hand if this is one of your favorite verses of all time. Yeah, many of you. I knew it would be. I mean, this is a, this is a, a well-known uh, Christian verse, uh, biblical verse. It's, it's, uh, it's got a, 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 it, it seems to have a very straightforward um, meaning and, and purpose to it. We can understand it in our English translations. We, we grab hold of that. And, and, and really, it, 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 from our English translations, it, it's a great promise, isn't it? It's a great promise. Uh, it's a promise that, that we, as we read it, we see that it seems that anything in life, Anything in life, uh, anything that life throws our way will ultimately turn out for good to those who love God. And in fact, that, that idea, that concept really is, it is a biblical one in many, many ways. I think of uh, you know, Genesis chapter 50 and you see you have the story of you know, Joseph and his brothers. And, and Joseph, though they had done terrible things to them, he says this in response. He says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So we see that our traditional understanding of Romans 8.28 really uh, bears out in, in many parts of Scripture. God uses all sorts of things for good. And, uh, and we see that time and time again. And ultimately, He's going to use the entirety of our lives for the ultimate good. And that is when we uh, enter the kingdom of heaven one day. Now, as a preacher, uh, you hate doing this. <laughs> i got to say, I hate what I'm about to do. Because what, I, what I'm going to have to do is, I'm going to have to uh, give you what I think is actually a, a very different take on Romans 8.28. And for many of you whom this is your theme verse or your life verse, the verse that you've loved all, all these years, um, I'm going to say some things about this verse that's going to hopefully open up our perspective a little bit more and let us see it a little bit more clearly. And though our English translations of this verse seem to suggest that it means something along the lines of Genesis 50 verse 20, in fact, Paul is really moving toward a slightly different trajectory here. And so hang tight. If you love this verse, just hang tight. And let's see if we can bring some fuller context to it that will make us understand it a little bit better. You see, there is good reason to reconsider Romans 8.28. First of all, I want to show you it literally. I want to show you it literally word for word in the Greek. Now keep in mind, in Greek, you have uh, words and phrases that, do not, that are not meant to translate literally into English. But I want to show you what an English translator has to deal with. 
This is how it would read literally in, in the Greek. We know, and that those loving God, all things work together with, toward good, those according to purpose called. And you say, whoa, <laughs> that's really awkward. But if I, were to, if I were to literally read the text in Greek, left to right, that's what I would get in English. And so you can see there that, that translators, that with every Greek text, with every verse they come across, there's, the word orders often change because in the Greek language, you would move certain words to the front for emphasis and move certain words over here for emphasis. There's a lot of different ways to, uh, to go about uh, translating this. So I put this up here to show us what scholars have to work with. They, they start with this kind of a phrase and they say, OK, how do we piece this together in a way that biblically makes sense, makes sense with the context of what Paul is saying? And, you know, I liken this really uh, to kind of like a puzzle. Uh, my son lately, uh, Bennett, he's been getting really, really involved in puzzles. I, I, we love it, too. He's got this one puzzle uh, of this uh, of this. Uh, it's a picture of the sea. And there's fish in it, and there's octopus, and there's, there's uh, sharks, and there's dolphins, and there's all sorts of things in this picture of, uh, uh, of, of the puzzle, right? And so we pour out all the pieces on the table. There's about 20, 25 pieces for them, you know, the, the good-sized pieces. And, we, and he starts working on it, and we always say, Bennett, look at the picture. Look at the picture so that you can see how to make the puzzle. And one of the first things he always goes for, without fail, is this little uh, orange octopus. It's, it's the most noticeable thing on the puzzle piece, okay? Uh, we, we always say, you know, because it's kind of hard to start. You know, where do you start in the puzzle, right? You always got to start somewhere. And so we're always saying to Bennett, Bennett, find the orange octopus. And if you find the orange octopus, you can then look at the picture and start building around the orange octopus. Our job right now is to find the orange octopus. And now tell me if you are able to find this octopus because we're going to be looking for it, you know, right now. Okay, so so let's take a look. And okay, wait a minute. That's that's kind of weird. All right. There's an orange octopus right there. All right. Next slide, Joyce. Work together with that's the orange octopus of this puzzle piece. Okay, this is the centerpiece of the puzzle. And this is where we're going to start as, as, a, as a group here as we try to figure out what does verse 28 mean? This word in Greek, synergeo, work together with, is the orange octopus of Romans 8.28. It is the centerpiece of this verse. And what does it mean? It means to work together with or to cooperate with. It always means that. It is used five times in the New Testament. And, it, it, and every single time it is used, it has the idea of two parties working together toward a common end or goal. Let me say that again. It, ha it has to do with two parties working together toward a common end or goal. And with great uniformity. Uh, we, we see this, this meaning time and time again, working together with two parties. Now, um, 
Now, as we, as we begin to try and figure out how to piece together this verse, this needs to be our orange octopus. This needs to be our centerpiece. So go ahead and go to the next slide for a moment. What we see here on the left-hand side now is we see the puzzle pieces, right? I've kind of I've listed it out, uh, the, 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 the different pieces of the puzzle that we need to fit together. Now, we know what our orange octopus is, so I want to move that over uh, to the translation side of things. We have worked together with. We know that we're building around that. And we also know that that is the centerpiece means that there's a party A and there's a party B at the top and at the bottom of that verb. And so what our job is, is to identify party A and party B. All right, let's start with uh, the bottom one. All right, let's start with the party B here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull over uh, those who love God over to party B here. So those who love God is going to go in, in the bottom portion. And just bear with me. I'm not, I'm not giving justification for that yet. Just bear with me that that's uh, the second party. All right. Now, what about the first party? What's, what's party A? Who, who is working together with those who love God? And here's where we kind, of, we kind of, we look at the rest of the pieces and we think, well, okay, uh, who, who might that be or what might that be? I'm going to make the argument, and this is, a, um, this is where we're going to be stretched, um, but we're going to also see very, very, very good biblical evidence for it. I'm going to make the argument that the phrase all things is party A. Let's bring all things over there. Okay, so we got our orange octopus. We got the works together with at the centerpiece of this verse. And now I'm saying that all things, party A, work together with those who love God. You think, that's, that's really strange. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. What are... What are all things? Why would you say that, Neil? Here's why I would say that. Take a look at how Paul uses all things elsewhere in his epistles. Take, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15:27, when Paul writes, He, God, has put all things under Jesus' feet. What do all things refer to there in 1 Corinthians 15:27? The whole of creation. The whole of creation. In Greek, it's the word panta or pas. It doesn't always mean the whole of creation, but in many contexts it does. And this is one of those instances. Take a look at another verse. Take a look at Romans 8.28. Just before Romans 8, excuse me, 8.22. Just before our verse, Romans 8.28. This is six verses earlier. Notice what it says. For we know that the whole creation, panta, and then the word creation right there. Groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The word all things or whole or everything is used in the context of the whole creation of God. And let's bring Romans 8.22 into its larger context. Let's take a look at it in a larger context. Paul writes, the creation eagerly waits the creation is, is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. He goes on to say, For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So what's happening here? Well, prior to our text today, Romans 8.28, Prior to it, we're seeing two parties. 
Two parties cooperating together toward a common end. We see the creation on the one hand, party A, and we see party B, those who love God, the sons of God. Those who suffer on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have two parties here. Parties that are eagerly waiting for things. The creation is eagerly waiting for us to be revealed. That we might rule over creation as God designed all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And we are eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our body that we might be able to properly reign over creation and enjoy eternity in the kingdom of God. At the same time, the creation party A is groaning and laboring and and going through times of frustration and suffering. We see that in, in the earth. We see that, as I mentioned, in the animal kingdom, which was never designed to be at odds with one another but that the lion was to lay down with the lamb as God originally intended. There's chaos there in creation. And so the creation groans and labors with birth pangs. And we ourselves groan and labor with birth pangs. That's what we're doing right now, are we not? I mean, everyone here is struggling in this economy. We are struggling in the world. We look at nations that are fighting one another. We look at political parties that are just beating each other up. The world is in chaos. The world is groaning. It is laboring, as is the creation. What am I saying? I'm saying there are two parties at work in Romans chapter 8. On the one hand, there is the created order. On the other hand, there is the suffering Christian. Together, we are experiencing both sorrow and hope. We sorrow through the the, the groans and labors and birth pangs of this world, suffering side by side, and yet we maintain hope We eagerly wait for the next life when we have a new eternal body in the kingdom of God. And all of creation is eagerly waiting forward to that day as well that we might rule over her as we were intended. Two parties, suffering Christians, a suffering creation, working together toward the ultimate end goal. Our glorification in the kingdom of God. When both God's children... And God's creation have been put back together in harmony. In harmony. So now back to verse 28. We have the puzzle piece on the left. And we got the trying to put together this translation on the right. Let's merge these two now and see what we find. And we know that all things, that is, all of the created order, all of creation, works together with, sunergeo, always used that way in the New Testament, works together with those who love God toward good, those who are called according to His purpose. This, friends, I suggest, is the best interpretation of Romans 8.28. It's a difficult one. Uh, It's one that uh, we don't find in... Uh, our English translations here. Uh, the translators, I mean, there, there's, there's such a wide spectrum here. There's a lot of disagreement on this verse. You, you read different translations, you get all sorts of different uh, readings. But this, I would argue, is the best way of interpreting Romans 8.28. Especially, number one, there's two, two main reasons. Number one, works together with sin or gale. It has to have two parties. And number two, panta, all things in this context 
refers to the created order. And we're going to see that again in verse 32. So this is a new translation, if you will, of Romans 8.28, which changes things a little bit. It changes the way that, that you may have understood this verse, if you uh, so choose uh, to agree with this interpretation. Uh, it would change uh, the meaning of it, uh, as you have probably historically understood it. But I want to remind you that regardless if you feel that I've, that maybe, well, Neil, you've just undermined something that's been my favorite verse for years and years. You know what? It's not been undermined at all. Because the notion that God works all things for good to those who love Him is a biblical notion. It is a biblical concept. We see it time and time again. I, I, I just don't happen to think it's happening here. I think what the main focus here is the created order and the suffering Christian are cooperating together in anticipation and in groanings. We are mutually working toward the end goal of glorification in the kingdom of God. And that's, I think, what's happening here in Romans 8.28. St. Hodges writes this, uh, puts it beautifully, really. He says, Paul has placed our individual and personal sufferings on a cosmic level. They are no longer to be thought of as merely my personal troubles, but rather as a part of God's glorious purpose for creation. Sufferings, both ours and creation's, are preparing the way for the advent of the age to come. They work together toward this end. And that is, uh, that is really, really well put. Really well put. So now, a new translation I, I'm proposing for Romans 8.28. Let's take a look at it one more time. And we know that all things, all of creation, is working together with those who love God toward good. Those who are called according to His purpose. And now Paul goes on in verse 29. And he goes on to say this. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. Well, here we go. <laughs> this is a fun one, right? Everybody loves this kind of a verse. Foreknowledge. Predestination. You know, everybody, everybody's glad that they're not me right now. Huh? Right? You're all glad that you're not me trying to explain this stuff. Um, what? Boy, those are loaded theological terms, aren't they? They are, just, they are just packed with so much implication and meaning, depending on which way you understand these terms. But before we get to these terms, focus on... A bigger issue here. All these things. The fact that God foreknew us. The fact that God predestined us. Are accomplished toward a certain end goal. This is the end goal. Take a look. To be conformed. This is the purpose statement of our foreknowledge and predestination. To be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, everything we're about to read in 29 and 30 is done for this purpose, that we might become like Jesus Christ, like brothers and sisters, in fact, 
of the very one who will one day reign supreme as the preeminent firstborn over all creation. Again, that's the context here. That's why the word firstborn is used. Make no mistake, the the mention of the term firstborn here is of tremendous importance. Such a term carries with it the idea of inheritance, of heirship. A firstborn son in the Old Testament was a son who was given a double portion. He was especially honored by the Father. And so also, Jesus, the eternal firstborn of the Father, will one day have all things subjected under His feet. And we, we have the opportunity to become joint heirs of the firstborn one, King Jesus. We have the opportunity to become co-glorified with Him and reign alongside Him in the kingdom if we suffer with Him in this life. This is God's plan for us. This is God's plan for us. That we might be conformed to the image of His Son, that as the Father gives the reign of the kingdom to His Son, that Jesus might also be able to share it with those of us who are His joint heir, brothers and sisters. Jesus' inheritance is meant to be shared. It is designed to be shared. As we read here. That He might be the firstborn among or in the midst of many brethren. The inheritance meant to be shared. And so, the two loaded theological terms that we see in verse 29, foreknew and predestined, are not so much with a view of getting into heaven, but with a view toward co-reigning with Christ in the kingdom of God. And so now we come to those terms. Let's take a look at the first term, foreknew. Uh, the term uh, foreknew is, uh, is a peculiar one in, in the Greek New Testament. Um, uh, it's used five times in the New Testament. Once in Acts, three times by, uh, excuse me, twice by Paul and twice by Peter. And uh, these are the two meanings that, that we see here in the use of this term foreknew. Number one, to know beforehand or already. You might want to write this down here. I apologize that we don't have it in the notes there. But to know beforehand or already. Um, Paul talks about in Acts 26 how the people knew him. They knew his history. And so they knew that, that he wasn't worthy of the crime that he was being accused of in Acts 26. And, uh, and then, but then there's a second meaning of the word foreknew. And it is this. To choose beforehand or from the beginning. And that is the sense in which I would argue is in Romans 8.29. Um, we have here, particularly in 1 Peter 1.20, if you were to look up 1 Peter 1.20, the, the context is clear. The term foreknew there means to choose beforehand and not simply to know of in advance of what would happen, but to choose ahead of time, to set aside ahead of time in a particular act of choosing. Um, so to, to deny the, the notion of God's choosing here is really to, uh, to really deny the essence of the passage. The whole point in Romans 8.28 is that God is, is putting the creation and the believer together cooperatively. They're groaning together. They're anticipating together. They're looking forward to the kingdom. And yet they're suffering through this life. And God is orchestrating this. And He's sending the Spirit to help us. And here it speaks of us being 
foreknown. God is choosing beforehand something. I would argue in this context, it has specifically to do with choosing beforehand the measure of glory that He will offer, that He will give to those who will suffer with His Son. And now we come to the second term, predestined. Uh, pro orizo in Greek, it's used uh, one, two, three, four, five, six times in the Greek New Testament. And it also has the idea of to choose beforehand or from the beginning. So I've listed that as number one. Very, almost the exact same to foreknow. But also it has the idea of to set apart beforehand or from the beginning. To set apart. And so really that's, that's where we're, we're, we're moving here. This is our trajectory. Um, if, if, if we can even establish that the term foreknew doesn't mean to choose, we can't get around it with the term predestined. It simply means that. It simply means to determine beforehand, to choose beforehand, to set apart for a specific purpose, a specific gift, a specific honor. And that is in fact what's happening here in Romans 8.29. For whom He foreknew, these He also predestined to get into heaven? No, no, no. So much more than that. To be conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of His Son. That He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so God's, think about this, God's foreknowledge of us, His predestining of us, His choosing of us, is with respect to sharing with Christ in reigning in the kingdom of God forever. That's the trajectory. That's the viewpoint. That's where this whole text is headed. And Paul is suggesting here that God has set apart believers for a measure of glory in the kingdom of God to those who love Him, to those who suffer with Him, but not, not simply contingent on what they do in the future, that He's chosen ahead of time the measure of glory that He will bestow upon His children. Together, these terms suggest that the Father has been at work from eternity past in knowing, in choosing, in setting apart people to attain a measure of conformity to the image of His Son And to be clear, it is the choosing of His purpose, of His good pleasure. And that is why we see Jesus speak in this same terminology in John chapter 15. This is what Jesus writes. Jesus writes this, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask in the uh, the Father in My name, He may give to you. Jesus has... A theology of God's choosing, of God's predestining in His own teaching. It is hard to deny. And Paul elsewhere in Ephesians says, makes, it even, makes an even stronger case for this concept of predestination. He says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. And one more. In Him, in Christ, also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His 
will. I put this on the screen to demonstrate that we have multiple evidences in the Scriptures of this concept of predestination, of choosing before the foundation of the world to bestow a measure of glory upon God's children. But don't forget the intent, the focus. Take a look in blue here. At the top, that you should go bear fruit. That we should be holy and without blame. That we might obtain an inheritance. These ends, these goals in blue behind me, this is the end goal of God's foreknowing us, of God's predestining us. And so when people speak of predestination, I know many, you know, you get, you get Calvinists and, and then uh, Arminians and, and they, they disagree and they, they fight. Uh, so much of the disagreement is over this concept of being predestined um, into heaven or to get into heaven. But so much of the focus in Scripture is, is greater than that. It's bigger than that. It's higher than that. It is not that God is, is predestining some to just simply enter the gates of heaven. It's that He's choosing beforehand. He's setting apart people to be conformed to the image of His Son. To go deeper. To go further. To obtain a deeper measure of glory. A better inheritance. That we should be holy and without blame. And so we always see time and time in the Scriptures when the concept of predestination is used, it is virtually always used with a view toward a measure of glory in the kingdom. A measure of greater holiness. A measure of greater fruit bearing. Now, nevertheless, I will admit, the fact that God chooses some to obtain a measure of future glory does imply that He also has chosen them for salvation. We, we, we have to admit that. And many Christians wrestle with whether or not it is fair for God to choose to glorify some and yet not choose others. Others question, if God predestines our future before we even experience it ourselves, how do I know if I really possess free will? And these are good questions to ask. In fact, these are essential questions to ask as a believer. If you never ask these questions, you need to grapple with them. You need to deal with them. Um, I've dealt with them uh, now for my entire life, which is all 31 years of it. And uh, uh, it remains a divine mystery. It does. Um, it's, it's difficult to explain the concept of both God predestining us to a measure of glory and also us having the volition to choose to love Him and to suffer with Him, to believe in Him. And we know that the Scriptures back up both elements here. I could give evidence on both sides. What would be the meaning of the admonitions to believe if we couldn't do it of our own free will? And of course, predestination we see time and time again in the Scriptures. So, so how is it that on the one hand God chooses and on the other hand man maintains a measure of freedom to choose God? And I, I again, I say to that, this is, this is a divine mystery. I cannot explain 
fully in, in my language the nature of the triune God. I cannot explain with my own words and in my own finite mind the concept of Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one. Three in one Godhead. And yet, the Scriptures declare it to be true. The Scriptures declare it to be so. And in the same divine mystery, in that same Spirit, when we look at the concept of predestination, I would say we would be remiss to deny it. Because it is all over Scripture. We would be, we would be remiss to deny it. We would have to do exegetical gymnastics around so many different biblical texts. I would have to jump around all over these texts and weasel my way through it to try and prove that predestination wasn't true. But the plain sense of it is that it is true. God does choose. Guess what? He's chosen you for a measure of glory in the kingdom of God. You've been chosen. But on the other hand, I know that I have opportunity to believe in Him, to choose to suffer with Him, to love Him. And I know that in as much as I've been predestined, I also know that I am free. Because I'm also free to choose evil and free to sin. And certainly those are not things that God has predestined for me. A good and loving God does not predestine His creation to do evil. He allows His creation to do evil. So we have freedom and we have predestination. And these together are a divine mystery. Beyond that, if you can figure it out, please let me know. Now, these are good questions. These are good questions to ask, but I want to let you know that it's okay to come to this point and to say, I can't go much further. Because we can't. And it's not that we're, it's not that we're uh, in football terms, we're not uh, punting on third down here. Okay? We, we've gone as far as we can go. We've gone as far as we can go. And, and to go any further, uh, the Scriptures really don't provide further explanation of how these two concepts work jointly together. But let's continue. Verse 30. Moreover, whom He predestined... These He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. And in as much as the first two terms, foreknew and predestined, are terms and concepts that happened in the eternity past in the counsel of God, this idea of calling and being justified are things that you and I experience in this life, in our life. We have been called to become a child of God. An effectual call. This is not the call to everyone because it goes on to say that those who have been called have been justified. So this is, this is particularly the, the call to those who have believed in Jesus Christ. You have been called. And because of that call, because of that beckoning of the Lord, you have responded in faith. And because of that faith, you have been justified. You've been made right with God. All these terms are used in the past tense. And then a final term, the word glorified here. Interestingly enough, also used in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. Uh, most scholars su suggest that Paul is so focused that it's going to happen that he uses the term in the past tense. We await glorification. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for a new body. We're waiting for perfection. We're waiting for an inheritance. That's glorification. But Paul speaks of it already in the past tense. You will have this. And so he says, what shall we say, then say 
to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? For God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with Christ also freely give us all things? That's peculiar. All things. I think I saw that before. Let's go uh, at the top there. All things. Isn't it interesting that that word will be used again? Now, what might it mean in verse 32? Well, what could Jesus and the Father possibly give to you and I in the kingdom of God? What could He possibly give to us that that would be uh, connoted by the terms all things? Is it not a measure of glory, of reigning over creation in the kingdom of God? Is it not that? It falls perfectly in line with the context in Romans 8. It flows perfectly from the context that God, God who did not spare His own Son, who gave up the chief person of creation, the, the one who was uncreated, who is preeminent, who is eternal, who is forever and ever. God who did not even spare His own Son, the preeminent One, the firstborn One, the eternal One. If He did that, if He gave up the greatest, how much more so is He willing to freely give us all of creation? A lesser thing. In His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's going. This is the trajectory in Romans 8, friends. We've seen it from, this, from, from Romans 8, 19 and following. We, we, we roll through this all the way through to verse 32. And now we see here that God, who has not even spared His own Son, is now so much more prepared to share the inheritance of all things. To share the inheritance of His created order. Or in in Greek, it's to to graciously give, to freely give. And why is it given freely? Because it is of His choosing. It is of His choosing. And once again, the idea that the Father has predestined a measure of glory and heirship to us is found here in verse 32. Uh, The idea is not new. Jesus Himself even spoke of the fact that what is His to give out. The inheritance that is His is not even His to give out. It's the Father's to give out. Notice what Jesus says in response uh, to a woman's request. Notice this. In Matthew 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and she said to them, she said to Jesus, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Verse 22, But Jesus answered and said to her, You don't know what you ask. To sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. God has chosen to give a measure of glory to those who love Him, to those who suffer with His Son, To those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, He, in eternity past, has prepared for you and for me a measure of glory in the kingdom of God that the inheritance of Jesus would be shared. 
We saw in the, in the comic strip at the start of this uh, study here, we saw the, the little boy asking the father for his inheritance and giving all these good reasons and whatnot. But in the end, we know that Jesus' inheritance, it was designed to be shared. God prepared in eternity past to share it with you and with me. And what does that mean for us today, friends? Well, on, on, on so many levels, it gives us comfort and hope and, and confidence in knowing that God has set aside an inheritance for you. He set aside a measure of glory for you. And we, we participate with that predestination. We participate with that choosing as we love Him, as we suffer with Him, as we labor alongside the Lord Jesus Christ and alongside His church. So we don't just sit on our laurels and say, well, uh, God's already chosen it, so I guess I'm not going to do anything. No, we use the choices that we have in this life to fulfill, to carry out the measure of glory that we were destined to have. And the final illustration I'll use is, is you know, with me and, and my son, I mean, I have high hopes for Bennett. You know, I, I have... Uh, I, Casey and I, we always said, you know, as he was born, that we just, you know, for, for both my son and my daughter, but, but, and, but with Bennett, he, we've always sensed that, you know, God has something really special for him. We, we've been praying for that for him and praying that God would just, just use him in a powerful way in his little life as he grows up to be a man one day and that he would fulfill his calling, the calling that, that I have high hopes for and ultimately the calling that our Heavenly Father has for Him. And as a son always wants to please his father, as a son always wants to do right by his father, that's what's happening here. You know, you've been chosen for a measure of glory, but you don't know what that is. You don't know what that looks like yet. And so our job is not to sit back and say, well, it's, it's already been said and done with, so I guess I'll just sit here. And wait for it. No, no, no. Our job is to please the Father. It's to love the Son. It's to suffer with Him and His church and thereby attain the joint heirship that God has predestined for those who love Him to those who suffer with His Son. Let's not rest on our laurels. Let's participate with God in His plan to share Jesus' inheritance, all things, with His children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for um, this, this time of teaching. Lord, it's, uh, it's a difficult, difficult portion of Your Word, one that is uh, hotly contested by all sorts of uh, believers and, and theology systems of theologies and denominations. Many people, we read it differently and we have disagreements over what it means. Lord, we put forth, uh, by, Father, by Your Spirit's guidance, I, we try to put forth our best effort at understanding Your Word. We pray that You would have been a part of this, Lord, enlightening our eyes, showing us Your truth. Lord, this idea of predestination unto glory, it's, it's a difficult concept for us, Lord. But we know it's biblical. So we don't deny it. We accept it. And we try, Lord, by Your Spirit to understand it. Help us to understand more of Your truth. And help us, Lord, ultimately not to just sit back and 
assume that because You've made a choice that we now should just do nothing. Lord, we know that that's not Your intent for us. But as a, as a son wants to please his father, Lord, help us to please You. To do all we can in this life to attain that great measure of glory in the kingdom with Your Son. In His name we pray these things. Amen.